The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Popes Against the Modern Errors on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. This episode is a members-only episode, and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit www.truerestoration.org forward slash radio and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. This will be our third episode discussing Placendi Dominici Gregis, an encyclical written by Pope St. Pius X at the beginning of the 20th century. The encyclical focused on the doctrine of the modernists. In our last show, we covered roughly the middle third of the encyclical. For those following the encyclical at home, we've finished at paragraph 38, so we will start today at paragraph 39. In this show, we will finish off the encyclical, and His Lordship will provide his summarising comments on the encyclical. So, rather than revisiting the material we covered in the last show, we will simply continue from paragraph 39. It's in paragraph 39, my Lord, that he uses that uh, phrase that anybody who knows anything about this encyclical knows, he uses that definition as modernism being the synthesis of all heresies. So could you please start taking us through paragraph 39? It is the synthesis of all heresies because it is, is like a, a pot in which any heresy can be placed. It is capable, modernism is capable of any heresy because it attacks every single dogma. Uh, dogma, in fact, is impossible in modernism because dogma is merely a an outgrowth of a personal experience. It is subject to change just as human beings change in their surroundings and their attitudes. And so dogmas change. And so the very characteristic of dogma, which makes dogma dogma, which is its unchangeability and it's the fact that it's fixed, is removed by the modernist. So there's nothing left. There's just a, there's just words. And these words have no meaning as dogma. They just have a, a transitory idea, uh, 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 something that we think now, but which could be different tomorrow. And so the all of the teaching of the Catholic Church is put on, on this basis uh, of changing dogmas, evolving dogmas. And therefore, it is capable of any heresy, capable of denying 
of any any teaching of the Catholic Church at all. And that's why he calls it the synthesis of all heresies. It's that modernism is an attitude. Uh, it's not so much you know a, a heresy in itself. Uh, it is an attitude that breeds heresy and is capable of any heresy. It's the, the attitude that the church must adapt itself to the modern world in everything, in dogma, in morals, in social aspects, in general attitudes. It must somehow keep up with the modern world and change with the modern world. That's the, the modernist attitude. And they say, if it doesn't change with the modern world, it will die. And we have seen 50 years of changing and adapting itself to the modern world. And we see, we see it dying. Yeah. It has done more damage to the Catholic Church than 500 years of Reformation. Next year, we, we celebrate, quote-unquote, 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. And in those 500 years, there has not been as much damage done to the Catholic Church as 50 years of Vatican II. More monasteries have been closed. There has been a greater loss of faith. The religious orders are finished. There is no faith in the clergy. From the point of view of faith and Catholic practice, the statistics are appalling. And even people who profess to be good Novus Ordites, they're not going to church anymore. They are giving up the religion, the, even the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the Novus Ordo religion, which purports to be Catholicism. They're not interested in it. Even South America, which was supposedly the, the, the last bulwark of Catholicism for the modernists, is quickly uh, losing, uh, the, the Novus Ordo is quickly losing ground uh, in those countries to uh, evangelical Protestants and Jehovah's Witnesses and others who at least have a set of beliefs that are in principle unchanging. Because you take that away from truth, you take that, that unchangeability away from supernatural truths, there's nothing left. And people sense that, even simple people. And, and that's why uh, he, um, uh, he calls it the synthesis of all heresies. He says here, and now with our eyes fixed upon the whole system, no one will be surprised that we should define it to be the synthesis of all heresies. Undoubtedly, were anyone to attempt the task of collecting together all the errors that have been broached against the faith and to concentrate into one the sap and substance of them all, he could not succeed in doing so better than the modernists have done. Nay, they have gone farther than this, for as we have already intimated, their system means the destruction, not only of the Catholic religion alone, but of all religion. That's a very, very important sentence. And he has predicted it. If the modernists take over, you're going to have the destruction of the Catholic religion and ultimately of all religion. What what greater proof do we need? He predicted it. And and we live in a godless, religionless world. We we look around in horror and don't know what to expect as we get up every morning. What this world will, will provide for us. 
and then he, he continues in that paragraph to talk about subjective truth. And he says, we speak of truth in itself for that other purely subjective truth, the fruit of the internal sense of action, if it serves its purpose for the play of words, is of no benefit to man who wants above all things to know whether outside himself there is God into whose hands he is one day to fall. He, he strikes, St. Pius X strikes at the very essence of the problem, and that is the subjectivization and relativization of truth. And that very problem that he uh, is talking about here is the soul of Vatican II. If you subjectivize truth, you end up with ecumenism, where truth ha has no teeth where it doesn't mean anything. It's just something that you happen to believe or, or happen to adhere to. And that the what other people adhere to is perfectly fine as well. It is the, the mother of pluralism, where you might have a whole set of ideas. You might be even a traditional Catholic. But then you say, but, you know, it doesn't matter if you want to be a Hindu and I respect your ideas and so forth. It, it is the killer of Catholic dogma, this subjectivism. And so he, he uh, talks about that for a long time. He says, if all the intellectual elements, as they call them, of religion, are nothing more than mere symbols of God, will not the very name of God or of divine personality be also a symbol? And if this be admitted, the personality of God will become a matter of doubt and the gate will be opened to pantheism. And to pantheism, pure and simple, that other doctrine of divine imminence leads directly. So he's talking about what he, he mentioned earlier in the encyclical, and that is divine imminence, that God is present in all men, and that he, re he reveals himself to all men in different ways. And so to the American Indians, he's He's, you know, uh, some sort of a nature god, and to the Hindus, he's something else. To the Buddhists, he's something, well, they don't have a god. Uh, to uh, the Mohammedans, he's something else. That is what is known as divine eminence, and because God is in all men, that just paves the way to pantheism. For he says, we ask, does or does not this eminence leave God distinct from man? If God is in you, is he distinct from you or is he part of you? If it does, in what does it differ from the Catholic doctrine? All right. In other words, that by grace, God is in us and operates in us. So he says, if God is, remains distinct from man in this modernist system, it doesn't differ from Catholicism. But if, it, if God is not distinct from man, then it is pantheism, he says. But the doctrine of imminence, he says, in the modernist acceptation holds and professes that every phenomenon of conscience proceeds from man as man. That is, apart from grace, apart from any kind of relationship that he has built with God as a result of grace. And he continues, the rigorous conclusion from this is the identity of man with God, which means pantheism. So he's spelling it out very clearly. Uh, this will be picked up by Karl Rahner, this very error, which uh, he called it theological anthropology. See that man by his very nature 
is theological. And you know, Rahner was a famous pantheist, and he, yes, that God is in all men. He was the one that came up with the idea of uh, the anonymous Christian, that, you know, mm-hmm. or somebody who's striving for a better world is actually an anonymous Christian, even if he denies Christianity. Because it all boils down to the interior conscience that is essentially God. So he says at the end of this paragraph, these reasons suffice to show superabundantly by how many roads modernism leads to atheism and to the annihilation of all religion. The error of Protestantism made the first step in, on this path. That of modernism, the second, atheism makes the next. So he's really spelling it out, which is uh, very refreshing. So, shall we move on to number 40? Absolutely, my lord. So, he talks about the danger of curiosity. He says, we have to investigate the causes which have engendered modernism and foster its growth. He says that the proximate and immediate cause consists in an error of the mind cannot be open to doubt. And he he places these causes as curiosity and pride. He says, curiosity by itself, if not prudently regulated, suffices to account for all errors. Now, what does he mean by curiosity? There is a good curiosity and then there is an evil curiosity. Good curiosity is that the mind should be active and should want to seek the truth and should be serious about seeking the truth, which is absent in the present age when people merely are concerned about usually uh, uh, money and sex and power. Those are the three things that people are concerned about today. And the idea of adhering to truth and knowing the truth uh, is, is just alien to the modern age. You know, the modern age lacks a good curiosity uh, about uh, the things of God. But there's an evil curiosity, and that is, by pride, being attracted to novel ideas and, and rejecting what has been handed down and toying with fire, so to speak, in, in the intellectual order. And, and he says that is, is the, the basis of all error. And he quotes uh, Gregory Sixteenth, his predecessor from the 1830s, 1840s, this is the quote, a lamentable spectacle is that presented by the aberrations of human reason when it yields to the spirit of novelty, when against the warning of the apostle it seeks to know beyond what it is meant to know, and when relying too much on itself it thinks it can find the truth outside the Catholic Church, wherein truth is found without the slightest shadow of error. So it's, it's, uh, it's eating the apple from the forbidden tree, so to speak. That was a, a sin of pride and curiosity. Uh, it, it is to say, well, maybe there's something, you know, about this tree that is interesting and maybe God doesn't want us to know it for, you know, some reason. And, and you know, it, it, is, it is that, uh, that attitude going on in the same paragraph. He says, pride sits in modernism as in its own house. Beautiful way of putting it. 
<laughs> it is pride which fills modernists with that self-assurance by which they consider themselves and pose as the rule for all. So it was very typical of the modernists to call everything into question and to uh, judge everything, to be jury and judge about every dogma, about every piece of sacred history or sacred scripture, that they, they had an enlightened mind and they had all of the benefits of science, modern science, and, and they pronounced on every single thing, whether it was acceptable or not. He says, it is pride which rouses in them the spirit of disobedience causes them to demand a compromise between authority and liberty. See, that authority should not defend dogma, but that it should leave the modernist theologians to do their work. He says, for this reason, venerable brethren, he's talking to the bishops, it will be your duty first to resist such victims of pride, to employ them only in the lowest and obscurest offices. So here's the first of his prescriptions for for repressing modernism. Uh, the yeah. whole end of the encyclical is about repressing modernism. And he's, so the first thing is reduce them to nothing. Reduce them to places where they can't have any influence. And he says the higher they try to rise, the lower let them be placed <laughs> so that the lowliness of their position may limit their power of causing damage. And, he says, examine most carefully your young clerics by yourselves, meaning bishops, mm -hmm. and by the directors of your seminaries. And when you find the spirit of pride among them, reject them without compunction from the priesthood. So he himself cleaned out a lot of seminaries and he closed a lot of seminaries uh, <laughs> uh, because they were infected with modernism. Oh, yes, he was. He was ruthless in the good sense, and he was the only one to do it. The others, Leo XIII and his successors, they were in no way modernists, but they did not see the necessity of repressing it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would compare it to this, that uh, think of going out into your garden and preaching to the weeds. You really should not be coming up and you're yeah. wrecking the, the garden. <laughs> and then you go back in your house. Well, you know it's going yeah. to happen. See? Yeah. So the others were felt that they had done their duty when they had uh, said essentially that. You should not be modernist. And modernism is condemned. And, and they would condemn various things theoretically about modernism. And they expected everyone to... Uh, to acquiesce and say, yes, Holy Father, you're right, we shouldn't be modernists, we'll be good Catholics. It was a naivete, uh, and, uh, whereas Pius X understood that you have to go in with a pitchfork and get these people out, you, just as you yeah. would weed your garden, pull them out by the root, and that's the only way you're going to keep the church free of modernism. And that was, uh, I think, the, the result of his sanctity and his wisdom that's the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. The reason why we have the modernism that we have today is because those three pontificates after him did not follow his instructions in this encyclical of how to repress modernism. You get the impression, reading the last third of this encyclical, that St. Pius X is really, I guess like in Florida, is really battening down the hatches. He knows there's a storm coming and he's nailing absolutely everything down. 
to make sure that nothing yes. is loose, that nothing gets lost. Yes, but unfortunately, you know, it's, his successors are not bound to his advices, and uh, so, you know, that that I think is the the main cause, in a negative way, of Vatican II. For example, Roncalli is is summoned by Cardinal Delay in 1914, and he is listed as suspect of modernism. That's under Pius X. In 1925, he will be made a bishop, and he will be made a nuncio to Bulgaria uh, in the 1930s. He will be made an, uh, an apostolic delegate to Turkey during the Second World War. After the war, he will be made nuncio to Paris, to France one of the biggest jobs in, in the, the apostolic uh, delegation. And then, after he messed that up, he was made Patriarch of Venice with a clear path <laughs> to the papacy. Clear path. Well, yeah. And, you see, that's exactly against what Pius X says to do here. He says, you know, give them lowly jobs, you know, make them clerks, and, and you know, just <laughs> where they can't do anything. But Pius XI and Pius XII did not pay attention to that and gave him high jobs, high-ranking jobs, and made him very influential until he was the Pope or, you know, uh, attempted. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, para- that's the end of paragraph 40. Paragraph 41, he goes on to the ignorance of the modernists. So he, he doesn't... He just, Runs over them like uh, as if yeah. a tank. It's just, just steamroller, isn't it? <laughs> He's in the yeah, paper back and forth no again and again. <laughs> <laughs> he, he says, if we pass on from the moral to the intellectual causes of modernism, the first and chief which presents itself is ignorance. He says, yes, these very modernists who seek to be esteemed as doctors of the church, who speak so loftily of modern philosophy and show such contempt for scholasticism, have embraced the one with all its false glamour, precisely because their ignorance of the other, meaning scholasticism and the true teaching of the church, has left them without the means of being able to recognize confusion of thought and to refute sophistry. Mm-hmm. So the modernists detest scholastic philosophy and theology. That means St. Thomas Aquinas, essentially. They detest it. Uh, And the reason why they detest it is that it is so objective and so clear that they cannot have their heresies pass in something that is so clear and objective because they are essentially naked heretics when, when they are using scholastic philosophy and theology. So they prefer the modern theology and modern philosophy which is all subjectivist, and mm-hmm. so their heresies can more easily pass. And they talk, you just read the, the documents of, of John Paul II and Ratzinger, see if you can understand that. Must see be. if you can figure out what they're saying. <laughs> well, it, you know, they couch their errors in very, very, I'll use an American word, highfalutin language. A meaning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's meant to confuse you and soar over you, uh, when in fact that is uh, uh, actually a, a fallacy in logic. When somebody does that, they impress you with all of this, all of this vocabulary and you know, and these endless sentences and, and obscurity, and you're supposed to think these people are really smart. 
and therefore they must be right. That's a fallacy. And whereas a truly intelligent person makes complicated things simple for the average person, like St. Thomas Aquinas. He breaks it down and makes it very simple, even though they are very lofty and difficult to understand. So that's, that's a sign of a, of a true philosopher and true theologian. So ignorance is their intellectual problem. Just very quickly on that one, my lord. When he says refute sophistry, just for our listeners, could you explain what sophistry or sophism is? Uh, sophistry is merely false philosophy. It, it is a, a type of, say, a, a dummy or a, um, an image of philosophy. It's not a true philosophy. Uh, it, it is. Uh, it looks nice. It sounds nice, but it is not true philosophy. It is full of fallacies. That's what sophistry is. So he's essentially saying false philosophy. Uh, it, it's subjectivism, which is the, the the plague of the modern age. Mm-hmm. The I'm okay, you're okay, and truth doesn't matter. Uh, all dog, all religions worship the same god. Uh, you know, and so forth. Well, it, why can't we? Why can't we just get along? <laughs> yes. You know, it's it's uh, it, it, we hear it every day, and the great virtue yeah. is to be pluralistic and tolerant, and the great mm-hmm. evil is to be rigid and to actually believe that what you think is true. That that's terrible. Uh, you, you know, whatever you believe, you have to believe it uh, as something mushy and and subject to change and. Subject to contradiction. So if somebody disagrees with you, well, it doesn't matter. And then, then you respect other people's ideas, and you respect their lifestyles. See, that's what subjectivism has given us. It's the who am I yeah. to judge stuff. Ready to move on to paragraph forty-two, my lord? When he's beginning to talk yes. about the methods of propaganda, and I, how they got to where they are. Yes, he says we see them wasting such energy in endeavouring to ruin the church when they might have been of such service to her had their efforts been better directed. So notice that they want to ruin the church, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what they have done. So he, he knew exactly what they would do and, and how they would do it. He had their numbers, as we say. He says their artifices to delude men's minds are of two kinds. The first, to remove obstacles from their path, and second, to devise and apply actively and patiently Every, every resource that can serve their purpose. Um, uh, he says that the obstacles for them are the scholastic method of philosophy, the authority and tradition of the fathers and the magisterium of the church. Those are the difficulties that stand in their way. And he says on these they wage unrelenting war because obviously those things are, they contradict them. So they, those things have to go. He says, against scholastic philosophy and theology, they use the weapons of ridicule and contempt. And I know that because I lived through that in the modernist seminary. He says, there is no surer sign that a man is tending to modernism than when he begins to show his dislike for the scholastic method. That means St. Thomas Aquinas and that clarity of thought that comes from the philosophy and theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. 
once they show contempt for that or in any way, uh, once they denigrate that in any way, that's a sure sign of moving toward modernism. And that's true. All of the new theology is written in the modern spirit of subjectivism, and they all have an abhorrence for St. Thomas, Ratzinger included. And the reason why the modernists detest it is because it is so clear and so logical that they are unable to hide their heresies in it. They, they become naked in it, and their heresies are clear to all. So they detest St. Thomas Aquinas and detest the scholastic philosophy for that reason. And they choose to be phenomenologists, uh, as John Paul II was, or some other subjectivist. Uh, they espouse some other subjectivist philosophy uh, in order to hide their errors. Uh, and uh, you see this in the obscurity of what they say. You read their books, and you really don't know what they're getting at. But nonetheless, the heresy passes, uh, the, because the whole attitude of modernism is in them, of subjecting everything to, to a, a, a scrutiny uh, uh, of modernism and, and subjecting everything to the relativism of truth. Uh, and that, that's what uh, is seen in that. He says they exercise all their ingenuity in an effort to weaken the force and falsify the character of tradition so as to rob it of all of its weight and authority. So the, the tradition of the fathers and the magisterium of the church is, is again, subjectivized and, and uh, um, made to to appear as something that is merely transitory. Uh, that is, that's what the fathers think, but we don't necessarily have to think it. That's what the Council of Trent said, but that they were speaking for their time. This is the way they approach everything, and they they relativize everything. Um, he says, but for Catholics, nothing will remove the authority of the Second Council of Nicaea where it condemns those who dare, after the impious fashion of the heretics, to deride the ecclesiastical traditions, to invent novelties of some kind, or endeavor by malice or craft to overthrow any one of the legitimate traditions of the Catholic Church. So that's the Council of Nicaea. So that's the year 325. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> No, I'm sorry, the Second Council of Nicaea, that's a little later. Uh, but uh, it, that's a very early condemnation of modernism. And the uh, Fourth Council of uh, Constantinople, that's uh, early Middle Ages, said, uh, we therefore profess to preserve and guard the rules bequeathed to the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church by the Holy and Most Illustrious Apostles, by the Orthodox Councils, both general and local, and by every one of those divine interpreters, the fathers and doctors of the church. That's why it says, he says, in the creed, the, the profession of faith that was promulgated by Pius IV, that's in the mid-1500s, uh, you have to say, I most firmly admit and embrace the apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions and other observances and constitutions of the church. And he will put that in his anti-modernistic oath in 1910. Then he says that the modernists have contempt for the fathers. They pass judgment on the holy fathers of the church, even as they do upon tradition. 
So the fathers of the church, for those who do not know, they are the uh, great theologians of the early church. Uh, St. Augustine, St. Basil, St. John Chrysostom, uh, St. Jerome, who are witnesses to the beliefs of the early church because they mention these beliefs in their, in their works and therefore they're witnesses to what the church was teaching at the time. And that's why they have such authority. They don't have authority as private theologians, but they have authority as witnesses to the teaching of the church. And that's why they are so valuable and have authority. So the church teaches that if all of the fathers agree, or, or uh, you know, the great majority of them agree that something belongs to the deposit of faith, then we must accept that on faith. That that is a, a part of the teaching of the church. If there is unanimity among the fathers concerning a doctrine of faith. Mm-hmm. So, the, but they pass judgment on the fathers. They say that they were entirely ignorant of history and criticism. Uh, they are excusable for this because of the time in which they lived. And he says also that the modernists try in every way to diminish and weaken the authority of the ecclesiastical magisterium, the declarations of councils and of popes, by sacrilegiously falsifying its origin, character, and rights, and by freely repeating the calumnies of its adversaries. Typically, what they say is that, well, it was true for its time. The Council of Trent, all those condemnations of the Council of Trent and all of the teachings of the Council of Trent, well, that was true for its time, uh, but we have moved on, and dogma must develop uh, and change as human beings change. And so they are able to accept all of the teachings in that way. They say, oh, yes, I accept the Council of Trent, understood as true for its time, because they relativize truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very important point. So, you, you know, you see them perhaps citing the Council of Trent or... Uh, giving uh, a lip service to the all of the teaching of the church, but in such a way that it's it it, it has no more value. It's like uh, it's like what we would call Confederate money. <laughs> in the sense that it's, you know, it, it's worthless because it's just a, a testimony of what they thought at the time and their, their religious experience of the time. He says, "This being so, venerable brethren, there is little reason to wonder." that the modernists vent all their bitterness and hatred on Catholics who zealously fight the battles of the church. <laughs> so they they detest anyone who is anti-modernist, in other words. And uh, so and, and absolutely that's true. Uh, they, uh, as we see from Bergoglio, who, who can't stop talking about people who are rigid and people who are uh, <laughs> Pharisees and small-minded and all of these other things, then uh, we'll move on to paragraph 43. And here mm-hmm. he talks about the temerity uh, of the modernists, their boldness, in other words. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, they seize upon professorships in the seminaries and universities and gradually make of them chairs of pestilence. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Chair of pestilence. Uh, uh, they uh, so they are very very bold. They publish books. They they publish magazines. They, they they are full of energy to bring about the destruction of the church through modernism and and the transformation of the church into a modernist church. Mm-hmm. 
And he says, we have to deplore the spectacle of many young men, once full of promise and capable of rendering great services to the church, now gone astray. See, the, the, so many of the young clergy were badly affected by the modernists. And uh, they were attracted by their scholarship. You see, all of these modernists, you know, had degrees and were very well read and, and could cite this, that, and the other thing and had done articles in all of these intellectual magazines. They had high qualifications from the point of view of the world. And so, therefore, they they had a certain authority for young clergy, and they would listen to them. And uh, so many of them were, were taken in by that. And uh, that's why he said you have to clean out the seminaries. And he says if, if they treat of, meaning the modernists, if they treat of biblical questions, it is upon modernist principles. If they write history, they carefully and with ill-conceived satisfaction drag into the light on the plea of telling the whole truth everything that appears to cast a stain upon the church. So everything, all of, you know, rotten people that were Catholics and bad popes and everything, everything gets dragged out by the modernists. Um, yeah. They want to be well known. They want their names upon the the lips of the public. They want the uh, the applause of intellectuals, and and they want to be seen as the saviors of the church. So um, that brings us to number forty four, which is the beginning of his his recommendations, uh, and actually for his own reign, his his, his rules for repressing modernism. Mm-hmm. So he first calls for vigilance. He mentions Leo the Thirteenth, who he says both in his words and act worked against modernism and condemned modernism. Uh, but he says the the modernists were not easily deterred by these weapons. He says with an affectation of great submission and respect, they proceeded to twist the words of the pontiff to their own sense. <laughs> while they described his action as directed against others than themselves. You see, so where Leo XIII would expect them to loyally submit, they rebuffed it in that way that, well, the you know, the Holy Father is not referring to us, he's referring to somebody else, because we don't say those things, or we don't think those things. Um, and he says, therefore, venerable brethren, we have decided to suffer no longer delay and to adopt measures which are more efficacious. So here's where he's going in with his pitchfork. <laughs> so he's going to rip out the weeds. No more of this, you know, just verbal exhortations. We're going to, to go after them now. So that, that's the sense of number 44. In, in number 45, he starts out with his first uh, rule, and that is, in the first place, <clears throat> with regard to studies, we will and we strictly ordain, notice that, that scholastic philosophy be made the basis of the sacred sciences. So that means no modern philosophy in the seminaries or in any any of the in places where sacred sciences are taught. He says, and let it be clearly understood above all things that when we prescribe scholastic philosophy, we understand chiefly that which the angelic doctor, that means St. Thomas Aquinas, has bequeathed to us, and we therefore declare 
that all the ordinances of our predecessor, meaning Leo XIII, on this subject continue fully in force. And as far as may be necessary, we do decree anew and confirm an order that they shall be strictly observed by all. These are wonderful words. We haven't heard this in decades and decades, maybe a century. His direct approach where it's crystal clear. This is what I order. This is what I want. And, and it must be uh, obeyed. Seminaries, he says, where they have been neglected, these rules, it will be for the bishops to exact and require their observance in the future. And let this apply also to the superiors of religious orders. Further, we admonish professors to bear well in mind that they cannot set aside St. Thomas, especially in metaphysical questions, without grave disadvantage. So he, see, Leo XIII ordered that the, in seminaries and, and Catholic universities that the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas will be the, and theology will be the uh, observed and, and that other philosophies and theologies should be set aside. In number 46, uh, he talks about the promotion of sound theology. He says, we deem worthy of praise those who, with full respect for tradition, the fathers and ecclesiastical magisterium, endeavor with well-balanced judgment and guided by Catholic principles, which is not always the case, to illustrate positive theology by throwing upon it the light of true history. Positive theology means the study of the fathers. It's distinguished from scholastic philosophy, which is the application of of philosophy to revelation which application produces what we call sacred theology. Positive theology is to gather together the sayings of the fathers in an organized way and point out what doctrines they are witnesses to and the evidence for uh, the, the, the teachings of the church. He condemns those modernists, he says, who exalt positive theology in such a way as to seem to despise the scholastic. In other words, that's exactly what the modernists did, I remember, that because they detest the scholastic, they exalt the positive. So let's see what St. Augustine says. Let's see what St. Jerome says. Let's see what this one says. Let's see what, as if St. Thomas Aquinas did not exist, as if no one had gone through the fathers and found out what they thought and what they taught. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was so intelligent that he had merely to read a text of the Fathers once, and he could reproduce it on paper. He was of immense intelligence. Yes, he was immensely intelligent. He, if when you read St. Thomas, you know that he has gone through all of the Fathers. He is constantly citing the Fathers. And these modernists would think that you know nobody ever looked into these books. In their efforts to get rid of scholastic philosophy and theology, they say, well, let's study the fathers. And that's the way the Greek Orthodox study theology. They, you know, they, they, they sort of gather the, the flowers of the various fathers, and they say, this one said that, and this one said this. But they never really come to a conclusion about it. You know, and that, that's what the modernists do, too. Well, Augustine says this, and so forth. You know, it, it's to, again, relativize and, and obscure sacred theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the guise of studying the fathers. Yeah, I'm um, <laughs> Yes, you know, oh yes, I know, you know. 
So in number 47, he talks about secular studies. He says, uh, he quotes Leo XIII in, in saying that it's good to study natural sciences. He says, this is to be done without interfering with sacred studies, and that the natural sciences cannot in any way contradict uh, the doctrine of the church, because the church has always said truth is one, and the doctrine of the church must always prevail over any of the the data of natural sciences. In other words, if it contradicts the, the truth of the faith, then there's something wrong with the with what natural science has supposedly discovered. But you see, in the modernist system, natural science is placed on a pedestal. And where it contradicts uh, Catholic doctrine, then we have to adapt Catholic doctrine to the natural science. So that's why they took apart Genesis and and so, oh, you know, we can't admit any of this stuff, and 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 they they turn it into essentially fairy tales. It's typically mm-hmm. modernist, but the church is not the enemy in any way of natural science. In paragraph forty-eight, he talks about the uh, choosing professors for seminaries. He says anyone who, in any way, is found to be tainted with modernism is to be excluded without compunction from these offices whether of government or of teaching, and those who already occupy, occupy them are to be removed. You see how strong he is. You know, he's and, cleaning and again, house. Again, he's really laying the law down. He says at the start of that paragraph, all these prescriptions and those of our predecessor are to be borne in mind whenever this is, whenever this is, this is an issue. He doesn't hold yes. back at all in any way. Yes. He says the same policy is to be adopted toward those who openly or secretly lend the countenance to modernism, either by extolling the modernists and excusing their culpable conduct, or by carping at scholasticism and the fathers and the magisterium of the church, or by refusing obedience to the ecclesiastical authority in any of its depositories. And toward those who show a love of novelty in history, archaeology, biblical exegesis, that means interpretation. And finally, toward those who neglect the sacred sciences or appear to prefer them to the secular. Those are all signs of modernists, so they come under the same rule. Just get rid of them. Pull them out. (laughs) Oh, he's really reading the, the riot act here. No, no uh, shrinking violet, that's for sure. <laughs> no. Uh, says to the bishops, you cannot be too watchful or too constant, but most of all in the choice of professors, for as a rule, uh, the students are modeled after the pattern of their masters. So he, he's really calling on the bishops to clean out their seminaries of these modernists. You know, whether they did it or not... Uh, I think that if St. Pius X had lived until 1958, we would never have seen a run college. No. If these these measures had been taken all during the 20th century, we would never have seen a Vatican II or a run college or anything like that. Uh, You know, people say, how did it happen? And I think the answer to that is that Benedict XV, Pius XI, and Pius XII, even though not modernists themselves, did not keep in place all of these prescriptions, these commands that Pius X put down, 
and were not alarmed by modernism as he was. And, and he saw the damage it could do, and we are living through the damage that he predicted it would do. And he was uh, prophetic in that sense. He, he, you, know, you see his wisdom as a saint, whereas the others, despite you know, many virtues and, uh, that they had, failed to, to have that wisdom to, to persevere in, in what he said and, and were of the mind that, well, you know, he was going too far and, and that he, you know, was too repressive and too severe. That, that was the attitude uh, after Pius X. Know, that we don't want to go back to the Pius X days because those were really, uh, you know, very, very bad days or everyone was suspect. You know, Pius XII had a hard time <laughs> canonizing Pius X because a lot of those people who, quote-unquote, suffered under Pius X and who were suspect according to these rules came in and complained about it and said, you know, he's no saint because he did this and he did that. But Pius XII canonized him anyway. And uh, to me, that, that's a... Uh, and, the, you know, that was early for canonization. It's supposed to be 50 years, and mm -hmm. which meant would have meant 1964. But he canonized him in 1954. So you know that he wanted to do it before he died. I think it was his way of... This is just a guess, but I think that it was his way of saying, I'm too weak to do this, but I'm going to canonize this man that repressed modernism as his, the main characteristic of his reign. I think that was his way of saying you know, what needed to be said, but something that he could not say. His, his whole approach was one of, uh, orthodoxy, but weakness against the enemies of orthodoxy. And, yeah. uh, and I think he must have admired this in Pius X, but un incapable of it himself. And I, I think that's why we ended up with what we have now. Okay, my lord. So and, um, before we go on to paragraph uh, 49, I would just like to remind our listeners that they are listening to Pope's Against Modern Errors. Pashendi Dominici Gregis Part 3 on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing Pope St. Pius X's great encyclical Pashendi Dominici Gregis on the program of the Modernists. We want to remind you that this Popes Against the Modern Era show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. So, my lord, going on to paragraph 49, where he continues to nail everything down, uh, there's more practical application. He's, he, he's, he comes across as a very practical pope. It's, yes, he's got all of, all of his philosophy and all of his theology sorted out, and he knows exactly... The the prince the under the underlying intellectual principles, but he man of action, and he can and he continues in paragraph four, uh, forty nine. So could you uh, please continue to walk us through it? Yes, he he first talked about the professors in the seminaries. Now he's going to talk about the students. He says equal diligence and severity. Notice that word are to be used in examining and selecting candidates for holy orders. 
far, far from the clergy be the love of novelty. He tells the bishops, essentially, that they have to root out seminarians who are guilty or suspect of modernism. Uh, and uh, he goes through some canonical things there that we won't mention. And in number 50, he goes on to publications that the uh, bishops have to check everything that's published in their dioceses for modernism and for heresy. And this is where he imposes the imprimatur uh, in, in number 51 as well. They you see up to now, if you notice in some books in the 19th century, uh, some had imprimaturs, some did not. It, it was it was more or less optional. But now he says every book has to be has to that it concerns the sacred theology uh, or or anything to do with the church has to be has to bear the imprimatur and the Nicolopstat. Imprimatur means let it be printed in Latin, uh, mm. and the bishop had to give that. The Nicolopstat means there is no obstacle, and that was done by someone called the censor librorum, the censor of books. In the diocese, every diocese had a censor of books. He would read the book and determine if there was any uh, doctrinal error in it. And then, if he gave the green light, the bishop would give the imprimatur. Uh, then it was a uh, an acceptable book to read. Uh, it didn't mean that the bishop or the censor agreed with every single thing that the priest or whoever wrote it said in the book. Because you know there are theological disputes, and you know there could be all sorts of things that yeah the bishop might disagree with, but it does say that it's free from doctrinal error, that there's no heresy in it. Uh, so that's important to understand. It's not as if the bishop is saying I agree with every single word in this book. So he he requires the uh, imprimatur and uh, the censorship of books. This extends to the booksellers as well. If they won't comply with any of the strictures he's laying down, he says if they refuse obedience, let the bishops have no hesitation in depriving them of the title of Catholic booksellers. Just yes. Get rid, get rid of them. Which would, which would destroy their businesses. They they were the printers of missiles, the, the famous Burns and Oates in England and Benziger Brothers in this country and Pustet in Germany, uh, Maison Mom in France. They were printing all of the missiles, uh, altar missiles, and breviaries, and they had a big business doing that, charged a, you know, a hefty price for all of those things. And if they had the, the plug pulled on them by the, by the bishop, then they were finished. Uh, so that was their only business. And, and so, uh, and then... Well, I was just uh, he doesn't stop at the diocesan level as well. He says... If they have the title of Episcopal booksellers and even that of Pontifical, let them be denounced to the Apostolic See. <laughs> yes, yes, because uh, some, in certain cases, like for liturgical books, they needed the Pontifical approval. Because, every, like for example, for anything that had to do with sacraments, they would have to conform their book, the missile that they were printing, to the what is known as the typical edition. The Vatican would put out a typical edition. That meant that every single missile had to conform to that edition, uh, and the publishers had to send every single page of the proposed book to the Vatican. The Vatican would read every single page to determine that everything was correct in it. That was the that was what they had to do in order to be a pontifical printer. 
because, you know, it concerns the validity of the sacraments. And so, you know, one false word could, could invalidate. So the Vatican had to control the, the, uh, the books that way so that nothing would, would get into them that was improper or you, know, you could get any, any kind of deviation in those books. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, so yeah, so they, they are under the gun as well. <laughs> then in number 52, he says, it's not enough to hinder the reading and the sale of bad books. It is also necessary to prevent them from being published. Hence, let the bishops use the utmost strictness in granting permission to print. So uh, again, he, he's um, moving against uh, any kind of propagation of modernism. And and he goes on about some canonical things in that paragraph uh, about uh, how the bishops should go about this, which we you know won't talk about here. But uh, he uh, he says in all episcopal curias that means chancery offices, therefore let censors be appointed for the revision of works intended for publication, and let the censors be chosen from both ranks of the clergy secular and regular, and that means religious orders, men whose age, knowledge, and prudence will enable them to follow the safe and golden mean in their judgments. So that that is another thing. And again, some of these things were followed after his reign, but not all. And then in paragraph 53, he cites a law that it is forbidden to secular priests without the previous consent of the ordinary to undertake the editorship of papers or periodicals. This is because the modernists would undertake to do this typically and independently of the bishop. So he's saying no priest can undertake to have his own magazine or, or do publish anything without the permission of the bishop. He says with regard to priests who are correspondents or collaborators of periodicals, as it happens not infrequently that they contribute matter infected with modernism to their papers or pr- periodicals, let the bishops see to it that they do not offend in this manner. So they have to censor what the priests are writing for various magazines. Even if they don't have their own magazine, they might be writing for something, and the bishops have to censor that. And he says, it shall be his office, meaning the the bishop, to read in due time each number, that means the, the magazine, after it has been published, and if he find anything dangerous in it, let him order that it be corrected as soon as possible. And then he talks about congresses and public gatherings, that the modernists use these in order to propagate their opinions. And he says the bishops in the future shall not permit congresses of priests, except on very rare occasions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he says, when they do permit them, it shall only be on condition that matters uh, pertaining to the bishops or apostolic see be not treated in them, and that no resolutions or petitions be allowed that would imply a usurpation of sacred authority, and that absolutely nothing be said in them which savors of modernism, Presbyterianism, or laicism. By Presbyterianism there, he doesn't mean the Presbyterian Church. He means the idea that uh, uh, that bishops uh, are not, by divine right, uh, superior to priests. Or laicism, he means that, that lay people should be running the church. That's what he means by that. 
pretend that there has to be permission in writing to have these these gatherings. Uh, so he's he wants to make sure that these gatherings of priests are not hotbeds of modernism. And then number 55 is the diocesan vigilance committees. This is really good. Uh, <laughs> that uh, each diocese should have a committee which is watching for modernism. A diocesan council uh, to oversee and to to make sure that there is no modernism, he calls the Council of Vigilance, and that it be instituted without the delay. The priests called to form part of it shall be chosen somewhat after the manner above described for censors, and they shall meet every two months on an appointed day in the presence of the bishop. They shall be bound to secrecy as to their deliberations and decisions, and in their functions shall be included the following. They shall watch most carefully for every trace and sign of modernism, both in publications and in teaching, and to preserve the clergy and the young from it. They shall take all prudent, prompt, efficacious measures. So that means that he wants priests assigned in every diocese to be watchful for modernism, to essentially spy on the modernists, and to come and report to the bishop every two months in a secret meeting with the bishop, denouncing anybody that might be guilty of modernism, or even suspect of modernism. Sounds like a wonderful That's idea. One, it's a wonderful idea, and it's the most efficacious thing that he has mentioned so far. And as you know, he gave great encouragement to the Sodalitium Pianum, which was an international organization which kept track of the modernists and reported to Rome who was a modernist or who was suspected of modernism. And here, St. Pius X says this should exist in every diocese. And so that the, the bishop has ears. You know, the bishop is, is in a chancery office. How does he know what's going on? But if these priests, whose identity obviously would not be known, are listening uh, and reporting, then the bishop can act. So he wanted essentially a, a sodalitium pianum, that is this organization that existed throughout the world. He wanted essentially the same thing in each diocese, but he just doesn't call it that. Uh, so, so they, and then he talks about how you know, the various ways in which they should exercise their vigilance. He says, finally, we entrust to the councils of vigilance the duty of overseeing assiduously and diligently social institutions, as well as writings on social questions, so that they may harbor no trace of modernism, but obey the prescriptions of the Roman pontiffs. You see, there was a social modernism. Uh, that was rampant, and, and it's essentially Christian socialism. And he's he is uh, also uh, warning against that, and that they should report on that as well. And he also uh, talks about false apparitions. He uh, cites the Sacred Congregation of Rites. These apparitions or revelations have neither been approved nor condemned by the Holy See, which has simply allowed them to be believed on purely human faith on the tradition which they relate, corroborated by testimony and documents worthy of credence. So he says, anyone who follows this rule has no cause for fear. Uh, he says, for the devotion based on any apparition, insofar as it regards the fact itself, that is to say, insofar as the devotion is relative, always implies the condition of the fact being true. 
Well, insofar as it is absolute, it is always based on the truth, seeing that its object is the persons of the saints who are honored. The same mm-hmm. is true of relics. So he is giving a an instruction on how to approach apparitions, and that the that even when the church approves them, it is a uh, it is based merely on human faith. The, the church is just saying, we've done an investigation. As far as we can tell, this is a true apparition, uh, and it's not saying anything else. It's not. It's not making any kind of dogmatic judgment uh, regarding the apparition, and also the church is saying nothing, by the way, concerning the messages of those apparitions. It's one thing to say Our Lady appeared. It's another thing to talk about the messages because the seer is not infallible, you know, and no. his or her memory concerning what our Lord said or what our Lady said could be faulty. And, and you know, as she dictates the message, she might put in some embroidery. You just never know. It, you know, you have to distinguish that in an apparition. You could have a true apparition, but some falsehood, if not complete falsehood, in, in, the, in the message. So, you know, many people regard the uh, the messages of apparitions that are approved as necessarily true, as if it were sacred scripture. And it mm-hmm. doesn't have that authority, because it comes from a human being who is not inspired and has no protection of infallibility, and whose memory may not be as good as it should be. Then, in number 56, he says that the bishops of all the dioceses, a year after the publication of these letters, and every three years thenceforward must furnish to the Holy See with a diligent and sworn report on the things that have been decreed in our letter. So they have to send in a, a sworn report concerning the activities of modernists in their dioceses and on the doctrines that find currency among the clergy. So they have to have an ear to their own clergy and see if there's any modernism, and especially in the seminaries and other Catholic institutions those not accepted, which are not subject to the ordinary, meaning the religious orders, the Benedictines, the Dominicans, and we impose the like obligation on the generals of religious orders with regard to those who are under them. <laughs> that's, that's very strong. That means Rome wants to hear about the whole church, what's going on in every single diocese. Yeah. So you see the network, he's got the priests listening, they report to the bishop, and the bishop reports to Rome. Yeah. It's beautiful. If they had done that, if that had been maintained in place, we would not be in the fix that we're in. No, there would never have been a Roncalli or a Montini or a Wotiba. No, 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 no. So then he ends the uh, encyclical. Uh, He says, this venerable brethren, this is 57, is what we have thought it our duty to write to you for the salvation of all who believe. Notice how important that is, for the salvation of all who believe. Mm -hmm. The adversaries of the Church will doubtless abuse what we have said to refurbish the old calumny by which we are uh, traduced as the enemy of science and of the progress of humanity, which is exactly what they said about him. So he's ready for them. It is our intention to establish by every means in our power a special institute in which through the cooperation of those Catholics who are most eminent for their learning, 
the advance of science and every other department of knowledge. So uh, I believe he did set up a, a, a pontifical institute of science or something like that. Uh, in other words, he wanted to tell the world that w the Catholic Church is open to true scientific research and has no fear of it, and it is not repressing science. Uh, so he wanted to be very clear about that because that was the the big accusation against him was that you know he's an obscurantist and yeah you know, he doesn't know and he's you know supposedly not well educated and he doesn't speak French and and he did speak French but that's beside the point but the the you know <laughs> they they painted him as as an ignoramus you know the farm boy who who became pope and he just doesn't know uh, and uh, so uh, he he wanted to. Uh, put that to rest. So that's the end of the encyclical. He gives his apostolic benediction, and that was given on September 8th, 1907. Okay. So you mentioned, I think, at the start of the uh, of the, the last show we did, that anybody who wants to understand the problems in the church today really cannot do so without reading and understanding this encyclical. So in in conclusion, would you like to to wrap up this encyclical and uh, and provide your closing comments on on the importance of it? Yes, Saint Pius X uh, did us the great favor of defining and compartmentalizing, if we might say, this this very obscure error, uh, something hard to put your finger on, and, and he he had various great theologians study it and uh, submit to him their drafts for this encyclical, and he chose one of them. Uh, Cardinal Billot is one of the contributors, but he did not take uh, his, his uh, version of it. And he had the wisdom, as I said, to see this as the, the enemy of the church, the worst thing that ever hit the church. And this, this very long encyclical explains all of what's wrong with the modernists and their methods and what they intend for the church. That you have to go through each paragraph carefully and try to understand it the best you can. Uh, I have broken it down for the listener, uh, you know, it, uh, but he needs to read it. If you don't read it, you will not understand what we're living through now. You will not understand why there is so much devastation in the church. He tells the reasons for it. Uh, you will not understand ecumenism. You will not understand the, the minds of these people. You will not understand why, as he says, they can uh, you know, give some very pious sermons for, and say some very pious things, as Ratzinger did occasionally, as John Paul II did occasionally, but on the other hand, be totally modernist with regard to dogmas and, and the traditions of the Church. Uh, they are uh, you know, a Jekyll and Hyde, and that's all in that encyclical. Uh, and, and you really need to sit with a, a pencil and underline the salient points and understand each paragraph in order to truly understand the position we're in today. Uh, and also, as I said during the talk, that if you're asking why Vatican II happened, I say the answer is that his successors did not put into action all of the things he said to do in this encyclical in order to repress modernism. And the modernists rose to power because of that negligence. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, my lord. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to wrap up the episode here then. Um, as we close out this episode, we have completed what has amounted to a mini-series on Bushley Dominici Gregis of Popes and Pius X. And I want to thank you, Your Lordship, for all your time in being with us over all three episodes. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out this episode? No, I think we've said everything against modernism we need to say. <laughs> It's been it's been a marathon, but uh, yeah, I think all in all, uh, this will be around about seven, um, six and a half, seven hours of uh, of audio. So I'm sure that's that's plenty for people to chew on before they can read it themselves. Okay, yes. well, once again, my my lord, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next month as we continue this series with other encyclical. May God bless you. Thank you. Goodbye. If you have any questions for His Lordship or feedback on this episode, please contact us at moderneros at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to His Lordship. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful or beneficial to you and your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.